Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of us human beings are tribal, friendly animals. And when we live together in small enough numbers where we each know each other, if not by name, then by face, we are cooperative and collaborative. Do we have amongst us a very small percentage of predators and people motivated by greed who do damage to the other 95 or 97%? Yes, we do. And we have to be alert for those people. And we have to be willing to take action with regard to those people. But it's important all the time to remember that we, the vast majority of us, are cooperative, collaborative people. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is John Connor. He's going to be talking to us about several topics. One of them is his own personal healing experiences with psychedelics. Another is his thoughts on why he strongly believes that people in our government who have security clearance should be allowed to be take psychedelic medicines and benefit from them without losing their security clearance, which is presently the case. We're going to be hearing from John on those two topics and more. So stay tuned. But first, a couple of small notes in psychology and medicine. For the last 20 years, I've been talking on air about the obesity and overweight epidemic in this country. During that time, the percentage of people who are overweight and obese has gone from the high 50s to the low 70s. Presently, over 72% of the country are overweight or obese. Being overweight and obese is an illness. It needs to be treated. Yes, I understand that there's a strong movement going on in the country right now in order to allow people who are overweight and obese to attempt and do their best to feel good about themselves. I'm all in favor of that movement. I see no reason in the world that any sane health practitioner would want to shame or blame a person who's suffering from an illness. And as contrasted with some of the other impulse control disorders, such as gambling, overspending, overdrugging, overdrinking, oversmoking of cigarettes, as contrasted with all of those, when a person is overweight or obese, they're showing the world their illness all the time. And of course, that leads to a certain amount of discomfort, of embarrassment, of shaming and blaming, which we do need to help those folks with. However, at the same time, we should not allow our wanting to treat people who have this illness of obesity and overweight, it should not allow our wanting to treat them with dignity and respect to also allow us to forget and for them to forget that they're suffering from a very serious illness which leads to diabetes very often. It leads to cardiovascular problems. It may lead to cancer. 
It is very serious. So let us remember that. We want to do two things simultaneously. We want to treat people who suffer from impulse control disorders, in this case, obesity and overweight. We want to treat them with the utmost dignity and respect and kindness and love, if you will. But at the same time, we want to acknowledge that they are suffering from a very serious illness that they need help and treatment with. One more note on alcohol. Alcohol is a toxic substance. Any amount of alcohol is toxic to the human system. If you have any doubts about this, look at Lancet's article in 2017. It was the longest, greatest longitudinal study on the effects of alcohol that has ever been done. Over 100,000 subjects, thousands of scientists were involved. Over many years, the headline from that exhaustive piece of research is that alcohol is toxic. Please take this as a warning. Alcohol is toxic. It is in the culture. It has been in our culture for thousands of years. But you know something? We believe the world was flat for thousands of years too, and we came to realize it's round. We can believe that alcohol is good stuff, fun stuff, and has all kinds of goodies with it, and maybe it does. But that does not mean we should forget that our scientists have now taught us that this world is round, that alcohol is toxic, it is dangerous. We will continue with more talk about both alcohol and on obesity and epidemic in the future. But now to our esteemed guest, John Connor. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics, John. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Really a pleasure to be here today. By way of introduction, tell us, where do you live? Who are you? What are you up to nowadays in your life? Thanks. Thanks for um, for inviting me on this podcast. I'm an eco-activist, a sailor, and also a psychedelic psychological um, a person going under psychological psychedelic. I have a practitioner um, in the Berkeley, California area. I live in a sailboat part-time in Berkeley, and I travel part-time as well. And right now I'm in Grass Valley, California, but I'm originally from um, the Boston area and cycled out here in 2016 and have stayed due to the beauty of nature and the great connections. What brought you to California, John? Uh, uh, Schwinn hybrid bicycle and, and four bike bags. And I lived off of $15 a day as I cycled on, on an initiative called Cycle to Evolve and was trying to get people to think about how to evolve our, our political system, our economic system, our spiritual systems, including religions. And I uh, lived off $15 a day and, and, and had an incredible transformative experience. And did you bicycle across the, our continent, across the United States? Yes, I did, from Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Wow, what a, what a wonderful experiment, my word. And how many days did it take you to travel the 3,000 approximate miles? It was about four months and nine days. And I, I ended up in a farm in Ojai, California for about 11 weeks, living in a teepee. And then I took about another month um, after that, coming up through the Central Valley, where I was exploring how to buy farmland that was degraded and restore it ecologically for profit. And I put on a uh, wrote a white paper called Regenerative Returns uh, from, from that experiment. Where did you go to high school? In Easton, Massachusetts, E-A-S-T-O-N, um, a small town, and, and the high school was called Alvarames High School. Give us a headline or two from your high school experience. I was uh, class president in, in freshman year, and um, I was a little bit of a troublemaker. So the the advisors 
stepped down uh, when I when I won. So um, I learned that leadership can be leadership's essential, and sometimes being too outside the box can you don't stir the pot too much. Was your uh, high school a co-ed or was it all males? Co-ed. It was co-ed. Yeah. What could and when did you graduate? What year? Ninety-nine. So it's twenty years ago. Have you been back to your high school since? Um, occasionally, you know, I go home. I go back to the Boston area to Cape Cod every summer, um, or like every few summers. So um, I, I have traveled around the area, but I don't think I've actually been to the high school building itself. And did you go on in school after high school? Yeah, I have an undergraduate degree from Culinary Institute of America, and a master's in finance from City University of New York and Brew College. Ah, Cooney. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't I, free when I went. Uh, but I, it's not free now. It was free when I went to City College of New York. Yeah, I have a my daughter Evacheska is going to the City University of New York presently. Excellent. Yeah, great school system. And when did you uh, get? What year did you get your master's in finance? Uh, week two of my program was when Lehman Brothers collapsed. And I finished a 10-month master's by the by mid-2009. About, uh, oh, it's already uh, 14 years ago. Wow, yeah. the time goes by very, very, mm-hmm. very quickly. It does. And you've been here in, in California for six years. Yep. What, what can you tell us that you notice most about the difference between Californians and Bostonians? Um, there's much more of an ecological consciousness in the California area than there is in the Boston area. Um, they're, they're both, you know, left coast liberal area, you know, city areas. Um, I lean more towards small government and, and, and self-governance, but, um, there's definitely, um, uh, there's more tech focus out here and more of a meritocracy of capability and competence. And in the in the East Coast, in both New York and Boston, there's a little bit of that um, hierarchy of tradition and family and old money, and I, I prefer the the latter. I mean, I prefer the former. You you prefer the meritocracy to the uh, you're born into it, and so you get it. Kind of, uh, I see. And when was your first experience with a psychedelic medicine? Uh, when I was 14 years old in high school. So I'm glad you brought it back to that. Um, it was definitely less responsible than my healing journey post-2016 getting out here. Um, but I was with a high school buddy of mine, and I experimented on with LSD and um, you know, learned a lot about um, some stuff I was dealing with. And I hadn't done it for multiple decades until I started it um, again as a, uh, as a psychological treatment. So you had the one experience with LSD when you were 14. Yeah. And th- then you had a very lengthy hiatus until you started uh, being the beneficiary of psychedelic medicines in psychological treatment that you're going under. Is that correct? Yeah, for complex PTSD. Okay. Now, going back to that uh, experience when you were 14 years old, do you have any idea how much LSD you took? Two tabs, which I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> I, I, two paper, two little paper squares, with no idea what's on them. No idea what's on them. No. You know th- that reminds me of a story about uh, Saudi Arabia and the oil. You know the Saudi Kingdom is is uh, governed by a family, the the descendants of uh, Ibn Saud, and so all the relatives 
uh, our beneficiaries. And uh, at one time, they contacted a major American accounting company, and they asked them to come over and help them with the accounting with all the money, because people were just walking into the national treasury, cousins, princes, princesses, and grabbing money and taking it. (laughs) And they said, come on, we need some accounting system. And and so they, they set them up with an accounting system, and they said, okay, this is the accounting system. Everything has to be written down. Anytime somebody goes into that vault and comes out with money, you're going to write it down in this big book. And we'll be back in three months to check your work. So three months go by, and they fly over there, and they go into the room, sit down at the big desk, and open up the book. And the prince who's in charge, is very proud. And he says, we have done a perfect job. We did everything you said. Every drop of money that was taken out of that vault has been accounted for and written in this book. Please take a look at it. And the guy from Deloitte Touche Ross, you know, opens up the book. And there on page one, it says, Brother Prince Ibn Saud, three large bags of money. Princess, blah, 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 blah. Two, two small bags of money. King, blah, 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 blah. Seven bags, medium size of money. Uh, right? That wasn't, my, that wasn't my childhood, unfortunately, but yes. No, but, but, but no, but yours was two tabs, but they were tabs, <laughs> but you don't know what was on them. No idea. <laughs> exactly. Now, do you remember the experience? Do you remember like... Did you close your eyes and were you lay flat on the floor? Were you ever to walk around? That'll tell me something about the size of the dose. Yeah, I was barely able to walk around. Um, I was with a buddy of mine who's now deceased. Um, his name's Dan Smith and another friend whose name I won't mention because I believe he serves in the military now. Um, and we, we hung out for a few hours and then I had to come home to my family. And I believe I rode my bicycle. Because uh, that was my main form of transportation at the time, and I came home and 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 had to hide from my mother and father that I was on LSD. Um, I believe I told my older brother, who was a good friend at the time, um, and you know, I mean, and, and informed him that I was doing that. And then I had a lava lamp and a, and a black light and listened to Jimi Hendrix, and I did spend a lot of time alone, coping with you know, like the uniqueness of the experience. I see. And you actually rode the bicycle while you were under the influence. Yeah, yeah. And you must know the famous story of Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, and he discovered it, of course, in part while he was riding a bicycle home. In the bicycle day. Bicycle day, you know, quite a coincidence. Okay, fast forward us. You, you did gain some insights during that experience when you were 14, you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I've I grew up with a family, and you know, my dad's and I, uh, I went through the big five accounting firm, and was you know business oriented. At that time, I hadn't had any work experience besides being a paper boy, but I do remember enjoying the creativity of of the experience, and that it unlocked aspects of my self that I think um, carried through the, much of my life, and I really enjoy the creative outlet and an output, and will leave careers and jobs if they don't have that that satiation of, of creative uh, fulfillment. So if you had a positive experience when you were 14, albeit 
somewhat of a risky one because you didn't have a guide. You know, you were traveling, which is a no-no, of course, and you got through all that. But given that you your takeaway was that you had a positive experience. Definitely. What led to your not taking any of the medicines again for such a protracted period of time? Oh, this is tough. It's, I mean, it's like the psychological warfare of family members who figured it out. So I did get told, told on by a family member of mine for doing it and having to explain to my mom and dad that what an LSD was and, and how I went through it. It, was, it became a very big issue in the family. So because of their outrage and the social psychological framing, I guess, of the, of the collective, I was. I, I decided not to do it again until uh, in, in in a um, under the care of a medical practitioner, uh, because it was the, the outrage was was extreme. And tell us something about the the nature of the outrage. What form did it take? Like, what was the bad thing that you had done? Could, can you give us a flavor? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it basically it was just like, how dare you? Um, you're basically going to go insane was the narrative, you know, that this substance due to my parents' sixties upbringing, um, you know, they were under the influence of the mass media coverage of uh, much higher doses of that age, that era, um, of people that had lost their mind or terrorist horror stories of individuals that took LSD. And so they were under the influence of that. It was kind of like the COVID outrage, you know what I mean? It was just, I think somewhat manufactured to create fear and the fear was palpable. My mom, my mom in particular is, I don't know if she had already been a nurse at that time. She maybe was going through nursing school and my father, a more, you know, typical button down businessman. They, they couldn't believe their, their, their son had, had, had trespassed and, and taken such a awful substance. And it was, um, it was a severe uh, backlash. It was out of the moral outrage was out of fear that their son would go crazy from taking this substance. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. Okay, so they had bought the the uh, the, the media and the party line. And by Big the job. way, there has never been a death attributed to LSD, as far as we know, and as far as the leading experts in this country know. There have been deaths from other substances, such as heroin and cocaine, but yeah. there's there's never been a death, a death attributable to LSD. The stories of people going crazy, most of them have been disproven. The the stories of people jumping off buildings, the Art Linkletter, the famous story about him, his daughter jumping, they've all they've been disproven. But the fact is, as you point out with your folks who are not alone, the media and the government's position have had a disastrous effect of disinformation. It's yes. very unfortunate. Okay, and my parents are great people. Now. I don't I, I don't blame them for what they did. They just were reacting the, from their conditioning. As did millions of Americans across the country. Yeah. In those days, people trusted the media. They were told it was dangerous. They were told you'd go crazy or, or suicide. And they, yeah. they bought it. Yeah, they did. Um, fast forward us now to your entering into a psychotherapeutic endeavor uh, using psychedelic substances. 
tell us what substances and what effect they're having and how you're using them, please. Yeah, um, I guess the first substance I used was LSD in, in microdosing form. And I had discovered that I was, you know, I had this PTSD um, diagnosis from a nurse practitioner and um, went through a process of trying to figure out how to best treat it. Um, I can be a bit aggressive when crossed, especially with the Boston Irish upbringing. And I was trying to find a way to curb it or, 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 or you know, maximize my creative potential while also minimizing some of the um, negative outputs of my personality. And so I really enjoyed the, the LSD in microdose format, but I didn't want to become dependent on a substance. So I think we evolved into a eight hour psilocybin experience with my psychedelic psychological practitioner who I had known five years prior, um, who happened to be, had moved out in this area. And I went to her place and was under a blindfold for about eight hours. And it was about half, half psilocybin, half MDMA. And that was a very beautiful experience because I was able to go through some traumatic childhood experiences that at that time I looked at it from a victim standpoint. And when I went through it again in, 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 in this like a, in this treatment-like format um, with somebody I trusted, I was able to open up and, and be less uh, angry and, and, and release some of the resentment and, and find love and care and and... Um, then from there, I, I, she recommended, I, I, I look into a boga, a plant, a tree bark from Africa. Ibogaine. Ibogaine is the, is the pharmaceutical version of a boga, right. but a boga is the pure plant version right. of it. Yeah. And I took, I took the pure plant version of it in Costa ah, Rica Okay. At, uh, under a, uh, under a treatment of an organization that um, was just focusing on psychological treatment, not addiction. So it's a little less, they give you a little bit less of, of, of a dose for that. And there were two 72-hour experiences under a bamboo hut. You know, the first the first 12 hours or so were under under a, a blindfold again. I couldn't even walk. You got the wobbly legs. And um, from there, I discovered some repressed memories and stuff. And one of, one of which was I had attempted suicide and I didn't know it. I knew that I got hit by a bus in Manhattan six years prior and I did not know that I did it on purpose. So I was hiding from my psyche, the fact that I had harmed myself and couldn't heal from it because I didn't know the truth. And under a boga, I, I think under the first treatment, i saw that what I had done. And then under the second treatment, I was able to come to grips with it and, 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 and share with people I knew and, and I felt very calm for the first time in my life after that, that treatment. And then I've taken ketamine a few times, not under the practice of a uh, psychological or, or a medical practitioner, but, you know, just um, with, with pure substance that I knew and, and done it with friends in a, in a, in a, in a caring container to, to work on depression. And then the last, the last time I took psychedelics was this Christmas Eve I had bought um, a decent amount of mushrooms for friends as Christmas presents, and I was lonely because of my because of the COVID lockdowns, and I'm staying on a boat most of the time, and and feeling just just very trapped and estranged from some family. I reached into my gun safe to to blow my head off, and I had my I had my mushrooms there, and I was able to uh, take it and calm down and 
and come to grips with the feelings of, uh, of, of the abyss. And um, I'm still here because of it. Well, that's a pretty recent experience at uh, suicidality, isn't it? Yeah, very much. You were considering a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Very much. How are you doing now on the suicide dimension? Fine, and that's the thing. Is besides a few times in my life where it's t- t- it's gripped me to the point of of doing it, I, I typically don't feel it on a day to day basis at all. I do feel depression at times, but you know, it's it's as if there's a little gremlin inside that that has a desire to harm me that I haven't fully integrated yet. What um, what were the pictures in your mind of the bus incident Oof. before? taking the substance and then what did you see when taking the substance something changed yeah so the story i had in my mind and i had even gone to a lawyer afterwards because i got hit by a car and flew into a bus i figured i might be able to make some money off it and the lawyers were like no uh, no i can't take this case you you're in you're at fault and i had just come down from my lunch break um on 57th Street between, I think, Lex and Lex and 3rd in, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I always ran across the street. We always jaywalk in New York. And I just ran across the street to get get bite to eat. I think I was going to sushi that day. So I just thought that I ran across the street and miscalculated and got hit and woke up in the hospital. And when I woke up in the hospital eight hours later, they were like, you tried to kill yourself. And I was like, no, I didn't. What are you talking about? And then I had had some cash in my pocket and I had to go to the the hospital admin the next day because they kind of kicked me out of the hospital. They were like, you know, you're okay. You don't have insurance. Get out of here. And um, I went back to the hospital administrator and they're like, you tried to kill yourself. And I was like, no, I didn't. I really swear to you, I didn't. Like, it was not my intention. It was a mistake. And so I had that story in my mind. And then when I took the medicine, I- the car, you got hit by the car and the car threw you into a bus? Yeah, so- what happened was there, there's four lanes on that street. The first two lanes were wide open. There was a bus in the third lane. What I saw on a boga was that I purposely calculated running in front of the bus. And that bus stopped. And then in the fourth lane behind it was another car that flew by and hit me. I hit, I hit by the car. I flew 15 feet in the air. I slammed into the, that bus that I was supposed to run into saved my life because if I, if I hit the concrete, I would have been splattered everywhere. And instead I hit the bus, the bus had give, and I was able to, uh, you know, still be here today and be alive and be in relatively good health. And get out of the hospital the next day. You were not injured. Yeah, they, they didn't. I mean, I think anybody who's over the age of 12 could have figured out that I had a uh, concussion. They didn't diagnose me with a concussion because I didn't have insurance. So they just kind of wanted to get me out of there. And then I had torn, I had torn some stuff in my knee um, that I was able to, to heal with physical therapy. But now you're fairly confident that the psychedelic medicines have been doing you good psychotherapeutically and you've been making some gains. Oh, very much so. You know what I mean? Like, I, though I still have depressive episodes at times, um, I feel I've integrated the elements of my shadow psyche and I can't promise that I'm perfect or that there are other times where I won't feel really awful. But that's why I'm so inspired and, and, and moved to help people who have PTSD, which most of the people I know with PTSD served in the military, were intelligence officials, and they have it from different reasons why I have it. 
but because they live in a realm and a culture that is unaccepting of this beautiful hailing treatment, they can't take it because they're not a rule breaker like me and my buds. So I'd like to change and transform those rules, the national security adjudicative guidelines to allow them to take it and heal alongside me. Well, before we start to talk about the national security guidelines, I'd like to talk just a little bit more about your personal story. Um, You mentioned that you had been diagnosed earlier in your life with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. What was the nature of your trauma that gave you that post-traumatic stress disorder that you were diagnosed with? Um, Complex PTSD from childhood. And it was, you know, just basically um, difficulties from uh, my parents having lost a kid and and just dealing with that trauma of it in the early stages of my life led to, uh, and then and, and strict disciplinarian Irish Catholic, you know, stuff in the early 80s, which was normal, um, was just difficult for me. You're familiar with the Johns Hopkins University research done by Roland Griffiths with depression and psilocybin? Yes, I am. I think yeah. it's incredible research. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's important you know that. The other thing that I, uh, to note is that. One of, if not the most powerful medications for depression is aerobic exercise. Ah. And I've had a great deal of success in my career utilizing aerobic exercise uh, to to very successfully uh, treat depression. Because remember, theoretically, depression, I mean, if you picture like a pillow and you make a depression in it, you're pushing down, right? You push down, and that makes a depression in the pillow. Anything that you press on, you you can make a depression in. And the same is true of depression with us. Depression is a pushing down of our energy. That's why severe depression, what's called clinical depression, People can hardly get out of bed because they feel so pushed down upon, so weighty that they 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 can't function. The weight is is too great. The aerobic exercise activates the system in a way that's not unrelated to what the psychedelic medicines do when Got they act when they activate the brain with extra oxygen. You might want to check. Duke University did some of the famous studies comparing aerobic exercise to antidepressants. And without going into the details of the study, I'll tell you that I I was very influenced by the study because the aerobic exercise left the antidepressants in the dust. Awesome. In fact, there was evidence that some of the antidepressants reduced the positive impact of the aerobics. And, you know, when I tell this to people, they often say, well, how much do I need to do? Well, the best study I know on the answer to that is the Indiana University research, where they hooked people up to various machines and had them do aerobic exercise for various amounts of time. And the sweet spot seems to be 60 minutes. If, if, a, pers- if a person does 60 minutes of aerobic exercise, they get a minimum of seven and a half hours 
of positive feedback, positive results to the nope. system, both physiologically and psychologically. So if a person does an hour in the morning from eight to nine, they have until almost five o'clock in the afternoon that they're feeling this emotional uplift and physiological response. And then when you do the aerobics day after day, there's a cumulative effect. Now, people say, well, that sounds fine, Dr. Miller, but how the hell am I going to do an hour uh, of aerobic exercise? And, and my answer is very simple. You start with five minutes. Everybody can do five minutes. Yeah. And you add one minute every week. Rock on with that. At the end of the year, you're doing an hour. Okay, I got it. But adding one minute a week is like nothing. Nothing. So, so for the first week, you're doing five minutes a day. Most I can do people's, that. Oh, most people say that's ridiculous. I can do 10 minutes a day or 15. Fine. Start with 10 or 15. Cool. But cool. Don't, don't get oppressive. Don't try to add too much each week because it can get overwhelming. Oh, yeah. Add, add a very tiny amount. You, if one minute a week add is too little, add two minutes, but don't add too many minutes because the thing to remember, and one of my slogans, is that a little something over a long period of time is a lot of something. And well so one, mi one minute added every week for 50 weeks is 50 minutes added. So you're there. You met the goal easily. And most people can do it much faster than a whole year in one minute. They can do it much shorter. So that's the answer to the question to Dr. Miller, how the hell do I do an hour of aerobic? You do it incrementally. You start very slow and you don't press yourself. Don't push yourself. Don't knock yourself out. You make it fun. You figure out what exercise you're going to do. You try different things. Some people, it's a bicycle. Some, it's a stationary. Some, it's swimming. Some, it's like for myself because I've been injured. It's the elliptical machine and swimming laps. For others, it's running down the street. It could be any one of a number of things. And you want to try a whole bunch of them to find out which one works for you, which one is the most fun, and maybe which combinations you want to do. Like, I love the combination of one-day elliptical and one-day swimming laps. Sweet. But I can tell you, if, if I still had the legs for it, I'd be a runner because I loved running. That was just yeah. a, a lot of fun. Anywhere I went in the world, I went running. Okay, enough said. But that's, that is the greatest treatment for depression that we know, and I wanted to pass that on to you and all the people who are joining us today. Thank you, Doctor. And to be honest, part of the issue when, in feeling so depressed recently was the isolation from COVID lockdown measures combined with I became more sedentary. And I think that is a thing that will happen to a lot of Americans and a lot of friends of mine that I know. Um, so thank you for the reminder to get out there. I'm going to start a 10-minute regimen tomorrow. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm deeply committed to use my body to heal itself. John, what you're experiencing with the COVID isolation, this has happened to millions of Americans and of course, millions of people around the world, but sticking with America now, millions of Americans have been inside their apartments or their homes for a couple of years and are experiencing the same as you. Isolation, alienation, lack of social contact, and of course, what comes with that, anxiety and depression. 
And so we all need to team together, to pull together and help one another to get out of this abyss because yes, it was Dr. a natural Mara. disaster, right? It was Completely. a natural disaster. Completely. We've got to deal with it. Yeah. Yep. Now, you are on a campaign to share some of this great information yeah. with senior members of the government. Yes. Please tell us about your campaign as much well, first as you I'll, can. Thank you. First, I'll tell you about the how it began. I was doing some activist side work with um, a mentor of, of, of my psychedelic psychological practitioner, happens to be Dr. Martin Polanco, who started treating people with Ibogaine and 5-MAO-DMT at Crossroads in, in Tijuana, Mexico, and has now begun an organization called The Mission Within. And The Mission Within works to restore the psyches of Green Berets, Navy SEALs, really exceptional Americans who've done great things for this country. And he's got a great treatment modality of Ibogaine plus 5-MAO-DMT to restore these individual psyches. And we had this amazingly charismatic, pretty jacked up, six foot eight Navy SEAL that was meant to be the spokesperson for this organization. And this guy was afraid that this startup, this mission within startup might not last forever. And if he puts his butt in the line and sticks his head out and admits that he's used psychedelic psychological practice, you know, psychedelic, psychedelic psychological treatments for his PTSD, he's going to lose his national security clearance and his future revenue that comes from being a government contractor or utilizing that, that clearance in a professional manner. So that was 2018. I, I wasn't ready to take on the banner of, 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 of you know, pushing this initiative forward. I feel in the last four years, there's been great strides done by both by Dr. Martin Polanco and many others in the by MAPS, by uh, you know, uh, psychedelic seminars. Just a lot of really brilliant people in the space have been pushing this agenda forward and you yourself with your psychedelic uh, uh, series. And I think it's time that we have the conversation at the national level. And I've just joined with Landmark's team leadership and management program. And I'm putting together a social initiative and agenda. And I was called Heal Government Insiders. And I'm looking to change national security adjudicative guidelines, which are the rules that govern what is acceptable to obtain national security clearance in the United States of America. And I'd like to adapt those, uh, update those rules, amend those rules to allow individuals who are healing their PTSD with psychological psychedelic treatments to, to preserve their, their national security clearance. Is the fear on the part of government that if people take these things, they'll spill the beans, they'll be like truth serums in some way, and they'll start yakking? I'm not sure, but I know that the United States culture has been, United States national security culture has been, uh, you know, very anti-psychedelics. Besides MKUltra and the CIA, um, typically other organizations like the FBI, like the military, they just have a zero zero drug use policy and and mind mind perspective that they they can't really get out of their their minds that if you do drugs, you're a bad person. If you do drugs, you're in, and if anybody's caught using these substances to treat their their psychological problems of PTSD, they could be corrupted by a nefarious foreign agent who finds this out because people could lose their, their, their security clearance for admitting that they're using exceptional medicine for treatment under the guise of, under the, 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 the treatment of a, of a medical professional.
But the uh, but the demon rum alcohol is fully yeah. accepted by all of these people, isn't it? Well said. It? Well said. I, I've personally given up 40 days of purification. Forty, I go 40 days of purifying from all substances, and one of them is alcohol. And I get it. Alcohol has done terrible things for society, yet for some reason it's been given a free pass in, in national security culture. Well, alcohol has been in the culture for thousands of years. It's embedded. The lobbies behind alcohol are international and huge, and they're marketing is brilliant. I was just mentioning to a, I was just mentioning to a patient this week. He said to me, he's dealing with a, a severe alcoholism, and he and and I'm I'm in touch with him every single day, and every day he he goes home and and he texts me and lets me know that he's made it home safely, and I send him a little note, and he sent me a little text and he said, I felt the strong pull of happy hour but I made it home safely. And I thought to myself, happy hour, a genius marketing tactic. The genius, the entire country, if not the entire world, have bought into at five o'clock after work, the first thing you do is have a drink. And not only that, the bars are wonderful. They have half price very often during happy during happy hour. So people drink twice as much. Imagine having a product that every, no matter what your product is, a car, toilet tissue, a fountain pen, a computer, where the whole world at five o'clock decides to use your product. What an incredible piece of marketing that was. So I said to my I said to my patient. What do you say we disconnect happy hour from alcohol? And not only that, do we have to have a happy hour? Is that all we get? How about happy hours? And how about happy sober hours? What's the, you know, can we, can we possibly have a hot dog without a beer? Yep. Right. Great, great question. These these things have been embedded. You ask, you know, you raise the question about, you know, the power and, and where it comes from. The power not only comes from the thousands of years of use, but it comes from the intense marketing. I mean, can you imagine anybody launching a ship with a bottle of beer or a bottle of soda? No, you launch a ship with a bottle of champagne. It's marketing again, right? So they burn into the psyche. If you... Want to celebrate? You celebrate with champagne. That's what a celebration means. It doesn't mean go out and hug your friends. It doesn't mean have great sex. It doesn't mean uh, have a wonderful uh, meal. It means get drunk. Then you're yeah. celebrating, right? Yeah. Burned into the burned into our psyche. That's what we have to work with. And what you have to work with is a government that has this policy that anything that these people with high security clearance do with regard to using psychedelic substances means they lose their livelihood. Yes. And the other thing is, you know, um, I, I don't want to go at it from an attack like I have as an activist in the past. I've been making the U.S. government wrong since I was an active, uh, Occupy Wall Street activist back in 2011 in Zuccotti Park. And I'm over making anybody wrong. But I do know that if we can touch, move, and inspire and heal, psych heal the psyches of government insiders, we'll have a lot more allies on the inside to deschedule these substances. 
to make them easily, you know, decriminalized. And it's just an easier approach than going against the man. I want to heal the man. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. Beautifully said. Thank you. That's that's a good quote from John Connor, everybody. I don't want to go against the man. I want to heal the man. Let's all take that. Let's all take that into consideration. Anything else you want to add today? We're about out of time. John, anything else you want to add that you'd like uh, this platform to allow you to share with our listeners and readers? Thank you. Yeah, just please go to healgovgovinsiders.com. And, um, you know, I'm looking to put on an art event in Washington, D.C. I'm really good, big at getting artists together to have a fun time, have a fun experience. And we may do it no alcohol based on your encouragement, Dr. Miller. really appreciate that. And have this really amazing, fun, exciting cultural experience in November of 2022. And, and invite military officials, invite intelligence officials, invite State Department officials, invite FBI officials. And say, hey, let's hang out. Let's have fun. And, and also, let's. what can we do to make this a reality? And I'm committed to do it by November 2024. So whoever's going to get in the next election cycle, they're going to get in as a, as a pro-psychedelic person. And I'm looking to build that coalition alongside you and, and, and your, your allies as well. Give us that website again, please, John. www.healgovinsiders.com. John Connor, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I look forward to sharing with you next time. You can listen to the program live each week, or you can go to our archive, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Until then... This is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 